Before we get started, I want to tell you about my friends at Lean Solutions Group. Lean works with over 500 logistics and transportation companies in North America. You can describe Lean as a nearshoring company or a workforce optimization company, but as a customer, I describe Lean as a strategic partner who can help me win in a very competitive industry. They can quickly provide your company with top talent in operations, sales, marketing, technology, and business process outsourcing. They have over 9,000 employees in Colombia, Guatemala, Mexico, and the Philippines. Everyone is working with LSG. You need to. Check out the link in the show notes. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is freight tech investment environment with my friend, John Larkin. John is strategic advisor of transportation logistics at Clarendon Capital, a private equity sponsor focused on developing investment opportunities and providing strategic advisory services to the transportation, logistics, and distribution sectors. John is a logistics industry legend. And in our conversation, John shares where the market is and where it is going. If you are interested in the freight and logistics space, you need to check out this episode. How's it going, John Larkin? Doing great, Joe. Thanks for asking. I'm up here in Saranac Lake, New York, where there's a heat wave underway. It might actually get up into the 70s today. Woohoo! There's nothing better than the Northeast and the Midwest this time of year, if you ask me. It is right now the end of September. I love September, October, and even a little part of November. It get all that heat goes away. You people down south can keep the heat for a minute. So <laughs> anyway, John, please introduce yourself. And when I was going to say your company, but I should say your companies because I know you're an advisor and you have role, many roles at many companies. Give us the short list. Yeah, in the private equity world, I'm a advisor to Clarendon Capital, which is a 130 million dollar private equity fund that focuses exclusively on transportation and logistics deals. Clarendon has five portfolio companies now, and uh, I'm on the board of two of them. So that's been a great experience. I also was asked about a year ago to be a partner of Venture 53, uh, which is the very unique venture capital firm that was set up by Pat Martin of Estes Express Lines and Dan White of Coca-Cola. And the idea there was to attract limited partners, all of whom were executives, successful entrepreneurs within the freight industry. And so far, there are 38 limited partners, uh, all of whom fit that criteria. And when Fund 3 is raised, the idea is to take that up to 100 executives and entrepreneurs who have had success in the freight industry. And the theory is they can help us source deals, vet deals, advise founders, um, and in general, test out some of the new technology that we might invest in. So it's, it's a really unique and somewhat beautiful model. And it's really been a, fun to work, uh, a lot of fun to work with Pat and Dan on this project. Yep. And by the way, that was one of the reasons I reached out to you. I knew you 
were doing something with Venture 53. And Venture 53 had, I think, five companies that were in the Freight Tech 100, which is Freightways list. By the way, I'll put a link to that list. Freight Tech every year puts out that list, the Freight Tech 100, and it is, it's got some of the best companies in our business, and it's obviously tech-centric, but before we hit record, we are just talking about Better Trucks made it from your lit, from, from Venture 53, My Carrier, Freight, my good friends over at Freight, my good friends at Emerge, Phil Logic, Highway, <laughs> Idre, and there's a whole bunch that are very successful but didn't make the list just yet, Idre, Da Vinci, Navix, Neutral. You guys are busy over there. <laughs> Pretty quickly, Venture 53 developed a high profile in the industry. And I, I would attribute a lot of that to, to Pat Martin's connections. Pat is the founder. He's still the EVP of sales and marketing at Estes. If you read the press, has been quite busy lately. They doubled the size of their air freight forwarding operation with an acquisition. They became the stalking horse bidder on all of Yellow's terminals with a $1.525 billion offer, which is quite impressive. So Pat somehow is able to, to juggle all of those responsibilities and at the same time have a huge positive impact on what's happening at Venture 53. I think that hypothesis that if you get a whole bunch of industry industry people who understand the industry like the back of their hand, they will do well. I think you've proven that out. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and also, aside from Clarendon and Venture 53, I serve on a number of boards, the most notable of which is CRST International's board. I also advise... I know those guys. That's the flatbed guys, right? Up in Iowa. CRST originally was Cedar Rapid Steel Transport, which started out as a flatbed operation. They have a big flatbed operation, but also a van operation, a dedicated operation, a brokerage. Oh, they're huge. A quasi-LTL, the old North American Van Lines Special Products Division, and then a last mile delivery company also, which is doing very well. That's been a true joy to be working with the Smith family there to make that a, a bigger and better company. John, I know we don't have time to go through your entire career, but you, I can say this, I don't say this often, but you are a legend in this space, especially on, on helping companies on the financial side, but also the leadership side. And be, I think you've taken a lot of these companies public over time. Am I wrong to say that? Yeah. Back in the days of Wall Street, I was at a little firm in Baltimore called Alex Brown and Sons. Which yeah, they've done all right. <laughs> Alex Brown and Sons was founded in 1800. It was America's oldest investment bank. Actually, did the uh, IPO for the B&O Railway in 1824. And once we got to the point of deregulation in 1980, my mentor Bill Legg really was a trailblazer in terms of taking some of the winning truck truckload and LTL carriers public. Just to name a few, J.B. Hunt, Warner, Martin Transport, wow. Swift. And then we got into some of the, the non-asset uh, type companies like C.H. Robinson, we took public, Hub Group, we took public, Landstar, we took public. And, and some of these companies have become really the best performing public stocks since that time during the uh, go period of the late 80s, uh, early to mid 90s is really when these companies were making a big time hay. So that was a lot of fun. And then I left to run a company for a while. 
called Railworks Corporation, uh, which still exists and is owned by a infrastructure fund in Louisiana presently. So that thesis uh, has held up over many decades. Uh, but then I, I left to go back into the financial world and got a job as the analyst at Lake Mason, which then became Stiefel Nicholas, and rebuilt the Alex Brown research franchise on that platform. And we went ahead and continued some of the same banking activity that we were involved with at Alex Brown, notably taking Old Dominion Freight Line Public and a few other very good companies. Uh, so that was a great experience. Ultimately, I moved into investment banking at Stiefel. And then about five years ago, moved into the private equity world when I became affiliated with Clarendon Capital. Yep. So you've been on all sides of this thing, not only in leadership in the business, but also bringing companies public and they just being an analyst and understanding what works and what does not work. Because I'm sure for all those deals you mentioned, there was probably dozens where you said, nah, we're going to pass or maybe made the investment and it didn't work out the way you wanted. And they never went public. It's You've been there, done that, got the hat, which is why I want to talk to you about the freight tech investment environment. A few years ago, it felt like there was just money raining from the sky on anybody who wanted to start anything that said freight tech or logistics or as long as it wasn't a truck, it seemed, yeah, there's plenty of money. <laughs> talk about that hot market and why it cooled. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I would tell you, Joe, that the freight industry was probably the slowest industry to adopt technology. We saw it move into the retail sector, the financial sector, the healthcare sector. And just maybe five, six, seven years ago, it began to, in earnest, move into the freight sector. It was fertile ground, lots of opportunities there. So people thought, gosh, if I get in early here on this trend, it doesn't matter what I pay for a company. Ultimately, it's going to create value for me. So that was probably a three or four year period where things were like the, the Wild West. Everybody was starting a freight tech company and there was really no trouble finding financing. And then we went through this period about 18 months ago where valuations had gotten too far ahead of themselves, interest rates started to move up at one of the fastest rates in history. And that has a negative impact on equity valuations. So all of a sudden, people started to get cold feet and be more careful about which companies uh, they invested in. Some of the existing companies that had planned to do their A rounds, their B rounds, their C rounds, their D rounds, and so forth, and continue to lose money as they grew and added a lot of people, had to pull in their horns, lay people off, become much more conservative with, re with, a, with respect to their strategy. And the hope was that they could survive through this down period so that coming out the other end, whenever that is, they will still be alive and running and can then secure their A round or their B round or their C round. So that's the difficult period that we've been in, in in the freight tech world here recently. There are still deals getting done, but not as many and not at quite the rich valuations that we saw one and two and three years ago. 
and so you can explain this much better than I do, but talk about what is a down round and why is that happening to certain companies? Yes, it's another good question. What's happening is normally when a company is growing, they'll do a seed round, maybe a pre-seed even. Then they'll do a seed round. Then they'll do a bridge round. Then they'll do an A round. Then maybe a B round. And each round is done at a higher valuation. If you were to look at a company like Project 44, that's pretty much how it played out over time. But when you get into a a difficult capital markets period like we've been in here for the last uh, 12, 18 months, venture capital providers become more cautious and are unwilling to sometimes provide a valuation that's above the last round. The valuation of the round that's done today might actually be below the valuation of the round that was done six or 12 months ago. And that's considered a down round, which is is a bit of a black check mark against a company uh, because it, it indicates weakness, but it may not be weakness at all. It may just be the weakness in the overall environment. Yep. And so the company that if I said, I, I'm, I just sold you $10 million worth of my business and we value it at a hundred million. So you own 10% of the company. And then maybe if everything goes well, the company, it continues to grow in, in sales and then valuation. But if it doesn't, the next go around, when I need to sell off 10% more of the company, they say, oh yeah, your company's worth $50 million. And now all of a sudden, everybody gets a little bit of a haircut. And I think a lot of the time, it's the people who might've gotten those options too. So you'll see sometimes the people who had options at companies saying, I'm never going to cash in any of these options. (laughs) Bye-bye. So the good people that had options, they thought those options would be worth a lot of money. They bail out and they go start their own company or go to work for some other company that has better prospects. But my suspicion is that we're probably a good 12 to 15 months into the freight recession now. And normally freight recessions don't last much longer than 18 months. So as capacity comes out of the industry, as inventories adjust to the right level, it's very possible with interest rates either plateauing or beginning to come down some, that we'll have a much better environment, say, by the second quarter of next year. And that's when I think you're going to see some of this backlog start to loosen up a bit. So second quarter of 2024? Yes, sir. So when you say, so we have that supply and demand in the trucking piece, and does that kind of drive the entire logistics space? Because that's tend to where we seem to focus. Yeah, supply and demand in the truckload sector. The truckload sector is the biggest and uh, most fragmented sector in transportation. It's clearly the, the backbone of our supply chain. And it's, it's so fragmented that sometimes it's easy for small companies to get into the business, easy for them to add a lot of equipment at a time when they shouldn't be adding any equipment and perhaps should be downsizing. No no one is really big enough to be the the leader, the pack and atone for capacity additions and pricing. If you look at those trucking companies, so as you mentioned JB Hunt, you've mentioned Old Dominion, which is LTL. In LTL space, it's it might have it's probably changed with yellow no part of not part of it, but isn't that like the top 10 companies have 90% of the volume, 80% of the volume? 
Yeah, I think that's about right uh, directionally, certainly. And uh, that has to do with the fact that in the LTL business, there's a lot of uh, economies of network density, delivery density, terminal density, line haul density. Without density, you really can't operate an efficient uh, LTL network. In the truckload world, it's a bit different. It's all about how balanced is your network? Are you able to secure reasonably priced backhaul loads? Should you really be operating in a triangular route pattern or a quadrangular route pattern? What should you be doing? It's actually much more dynamic and more difficult to manage than the LTL business. Most people think it's the reverse. But the truckload industry is now seeing some new technology come along. There are three companies I'm aware of that are doing truckload optimization. One is Optimal Dynamics, which is based on 40 years of research at Princeton University by a fellow named Warren Powell. And he and his son, Dan, have founded this company called Optimal Dynamics to try and get their arms around the truckload optimization problem. Uh, the like it. Very interesting company, which I happen to have an investment in. And then introduce me. <laughs> there you go. And then there's a, a company that's been spawned by the transportation group AT Kearney, which has a long and storied history of consulting in the transportation and logistics arena globally. And they've they've got a team in Atlanta that has pulled together a technology called HopTech, which is somewhat differentiated from Optimal Dynamics and is really beginning to uh, have a favorable impact on a number of companies that are using that technology today. And then last but not least is Optum, which is a company based in Dallas that is, is based around the fine work of a fellow named Ravi Aruja, who was a professor at MIT, who is a network optimization specialist. They first wrote code for optimizing airlines, then they wrote code for optimizing railroads, and then they wrote code for optimizing LTL. And they really have emerged as the premier LTL optimizer, but they're now moving into truckload. So there's going to be some players out there. And I think the interesting thing is when you fully apply any one of these three systems, you have a shot of improving your operating ratio by 300 to 500 basis points. Which is significant. <laughs> you can double the valuation of the company. Yeah. I want to take a quick time out to tell you, you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America Radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational, inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families, and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor, and teach. Wreaths Across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen, and please consider volunteering. So getting back to it, I think you were on my podcast once before, and I'll make sure I put that link in the show notes so people can check that out. I believe you said then that some of these larger companies, the J.B. Hunt, some of the well-known names will gain market share. So they are what, one and one, one and a half percent of the truckload market? Yeah, the, the biggest carriers are in that range. But what they've done is they've diversified to offer a broader range of services to their customers. If you look at what Hunt has done, they first offered dedicated. They're now 
one of the biggest dedicated players that then offered intermodal, one of the biggest, if not the biggest quasi intermodal marketing companies. They have a truck brokerage operation, and now they have a digital freight matching platform called JB Hunt 360. They've really stayed pace with the market, building on that foundation that was established with a a very high service, low cost truckload operation back in, in the 1980s during deregulation. When Alex Brown took JB Hunt public, I want to say JB Hunt had 60 million of revenue and about a 78 operating ratio. And Mr. Hunt and Mrs. Hunt were both there and they decided that they had maxed out on the truckload piece. And that's when they began to diversify. And they've done that absolutely brilliantly. I think Schneider is another company that's done some of the same things. They've done it very well up in Green Bay. And even Werner has had great success by offering complimentary services to their core truckload service. Yeah, I've, I've told the story before. I've worked with Ruan Ruins, one of my sponsors, and I remember f- going to see them in Des Moines and being. I had it in my mind that I'm going to a terminal, and somebody says, "No, it's a, it's a, it's a building downtown." And I was like, and I kept thinking, why do they have a terminal in downtown Des Moines? I'd never been there. I was driving from Minnesota, and I got there, and I stayed at the. It was a Hyatt then, but I think it's changed hands. Now, am I staying at a Hyatt next door to a high rise? And that's where the trucking company is that I'm going to see. And they're a lot more than a trucking company. And it seems like when somebody used to say, are you a freight broker? If you're a freight broker, you didn't have assets. Now it seems like all of the top trucking companies, all those you described, I'm sure all have full service freight brokerages and all the appropriate technology. And I would say it's, it, there's all those blurred lines now that didn't used to be there. Yeah, one of the things that's become really popular lately is the power only yes. approach. Historically, owner operators, independent contractors were forever tethered to the trailer that they owned. So they could only participate in the driver assist load and unload market. And that wasn't ideal because more than half the market is now what I would call the drop and hook market. So these independent contractors and owner operators now can tap into these big players who have trailer pools so that they can participate in the drop and hook market. Uh, Convoy has a big trailer pool. Uber Freight has a big trailer pool. Landstar has a trailer pool. JB Hunt 360 has a, a trailer pool. Warner has a trailer pool. And they basically are able to complement their company power with these power-only owner-operators. And that can be a very powerful combination that that helps keep investment down at the carrier so that their return on equity, return on invested capital is higher because the denominator in that equation is lower. Somebody else is bringing the capital to the party. I think also what's nice about that is, is I think it's better for the drivers. We have to make this better job for the drivers. They're still the backbone that we're, we're constantly overburdening. And I've always said, I can't imagine driving all day, just get to somewhere and they say, oh yeah, sit in the parking lot, we'll unload you in a few hours. Well, wait, I got to pick up something else before I uh, go to bed tonight in the back of my truck, by the way. So we've got to make this a better deal because we got to get those. And I, I, somebody said we have a shortage of truck drivers. Like we train way more than we need. They just keep leaving the industry. And I have a hard time. I'm one of, I'm one of my daughter's friends. 
had a few years of college and he decided he wanted to drive a truck. And I said, why? And he goes, I have an uncle, blah, blah, blah. And, and I felt bad about doing this, but I talked him out of it. I got him into uh, c- cybersecurity at some tech company in Ann Arbor. It's way better off. And I hate saying that, but that's the reality. Yeah. And there are a lot of really smart people in America that are trying to figure out how to run trucks autonomously. Yes. And it's quite interesting uh, that Governor Newsom, I think within the last week or 10 days, vetoed the legislature's bill that would have mandated uh, a driver in the cab of all autonomous vehicles, which defeats the whole purpose of having the autonomous vehicle in the first place. So maybe he's trying to become more moderate because he's thinking about running for president. I don't know. But these autonomous vehicle companies uh, like uh, Aurora, uh, like Kodiak, those are probably the two leaders, really have tremendous technology. The technology is being tested in the real world with real world freight, with real world uh, freight hauling companies. And so far, the experience has been terrific. These are very safe uh, systems, safer than probably the best human driver could ever be. I've had a chance to ride um, on an Aurora autonomous vehicle in the um, I want to say I-45 corridor between Dallas and Houston. It's quite an experience, let me tell you. They've got a million, they got over a million miles in that that one lane, right? Yeah, they do. They've really done a nice job of accumulating experience and, and the system gets smarter and smarter the more miles you run. It's not just one truck's getting smarter. All of their trucks are getting smarter. The whole system gets smarter. And and the other thing that I've noticed that's quite fascinating, there's a company called Gatik, G-A-T-I-K, that you may have heard of. And, and instead of solving the problem of how do I operate an autonomous vehicle on any road at any time, they solve the problem of how do I operated truck autonomously on a single route over and over again. So the truck doesn't have to learn the whole world. It has to learn the one route. And once it's learned the route, you can cut it loose. And you're seeing more and more uh, like DC to store movements being handled by Gaddock. And I think that's a, a pretty interesting company that's got a long way to go here. Yeah. By the way, I'm an automotive guy originally. I spent most of my career in that space and in engineering. And what I've been saying to people for a long time regarding autonomous is it's happening bit by bit. We got cruise control a long time ago and we didn't give it a second thought. That's autonomous. My car now will slam on. If I wanted to crash into a wall, my car would say, nope, we're going to stop you. That's autonomous. When you have your car back you into a, a parallel parking space, that's autonomous. So we're piecing this together and you just described it. It might not make sense to be doing it in uh, downtown New York traffic or downtown, but can I do it somewhere out in the an area that's more appropriate? And by the way, you mentioned between the Dallas and is it San Antonio or Houston? I forgot which. Well, Dallas and Houston is the primary route, but they're also running uh, trucks between uh, Fort Worth and El Paso. So, that, so they, I know they got hail down in Austin the other day, but for the most part, they don't have weather like you do in upstate New York or like I have in Michigan. In the winter. Interestingly, I thought what happens when the snow obliterates the pavement markings? It doesn't matter because the Aurora... They're adapting. (laughs) ...has geometry of the highway built into the system. It gets smarter every day. (laughs) So it knows where it is in the highway, even if you can't see the lane markings. It's really quite phenomenal what they've been able to do. 
I say this, people have wear whoop on their arm or an Apple watch and we carry our mobile phones like they're our babies. Um, it seems weird for someone like you or I, somebody says, Hey, I'm going to get a chip put on my arm, but we're not that far away from that kind of thing. And it's the same with the autonomous vehicles. If you were to tell somebody 20 years ago that there'd be autonomous vehicles, they'd be like, no way. But I guarantee someday you'll tell your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, when I was a kid, we used to get in our car and we would control it. We drove it. They'd be like, that's crazy. People are too irrational to drive around in cars. Right? <laughs> anyway, I know I'm going to lose you at the top of the hour here, John. So I've got one question I wanted to ask you. We know this, we had this hot market where all the investors were just chasing anybody who was in this space and then it cooled off. You said it's probably going to warm up maybe in the second quarter of 2024. Uh, I think a few months ago, everyone was saying first quarter. Now it's all of a sudden second quarter, which I understand it's feeling a little iffy still. What are investors like you looking for in the freight tech space? I know you just mentioned a whole bunch of companies that you think highly of. So I, I'm assuming we can say, you're looking for companies like those. What do those guys have? The the, the primary uh, criteria, I think, is to find a company that's trying to solve a problem that is a legitimate problem that no one else has been able to solve with technology before, that is sucking up a lot of human resources to solve presently. And we try to stay away from the 45th, company that's trying to make truck brokerage autonomous, okay? No, you, you don't want any Me Too stuff. And Me Too before it was a... Those guys like Convoy and Transfix and Uber Freight have a huge lead in that space, as does JB Hunt 360 and others. So it'd be very difficult to really start out from scratch today and make a big impact in that space. But there are People take highway as an example. They have focused on solving the double brokerage uh, problem, which is a very hot issue right now. And just about every broker that I've talked to that has installed the highway system just swears by it and says it's the best thing since sliced bread. Boy, where's this been all my life kind of thing. So that's the kind of technology you're looking for. You're also looking for technology that can reach scale commercially within some reasonable amount of time, okay? Uh, Time is the enemy of the internal rate of return on an investment. If it takes 10 or 15 years for that investment to really materialize in a commercialized sense, you know, that really waters down your annualized return. So at, at Venture 53, we really look for companies that have a chance to exit to, to sell to a strategic or a financial sponsor or somebody else within maybe three, four, five years. And that can really enhance your returns pretty dramatically, especially if you're calculating them on an annual basis. And then we look for uh, high quality management. Typically, you want some people on the management team that have done it before, if they've been successful in launching Another startup, say five years ago, that's a big feather in their cap. You also want people who understand freight and people who understand technology. And they may not be embodied in the same person, uh, but if you have a company that's all tech people who think they're going to be able to solve the world's problems in freight, you may want to steer clear of that company. 
And then if you have freight guys that think they're going to revolutionize the world using technology, be somewhat careful there because the real technology experts are necessary to get you where you need to be. Yeah, I've noticed also, it seems like there's a lot more founding teams rather than just one guy. And I think that takes some of the risk out. Am I right to say that? Yeah, usually there's two or three founders and usually one is a sort of a business person. The other is more of a technology person. The hustler and the hacker. <laughs> the hustler and the hacker. And hopefully they complement one another and can get the job done. But that doesn't mean that the venture capital firm that ultimately makes the investment can't be helpful in opening doors and, and guiding these companies to avoid pitfalls that they otherwise might stumble into. That, I would think that's one of the better reasons to invest with a company, to take an investor like a Venture 53 is who you guys know. We already talked about that. Everybody. <laughs> the fun part is really working with managements to help them be more effective. And I derive a lot of pleasure personally out of doing that. It's just fun to work with these bright young people. Fortunately, the freight industry has gotten to the point where we have a ton of these supply chain programs at universities around the United States. There only used to be a handful. Now there are many. And all these young, bright, tech-savvy people are graduating and going to work for shippers and carriers and brokers and 3PLs and 4PLs. And it's just really revolutionizing uh, the industry. Uh, for about 20 years, there was a big void of talent coming into our industry. And I say that to everybody who's young on my podcast, you wouldn't be talking to me 10 years ago because you wouldn't be in the space. And by the way, nor would I be. Uh, I, I only stayed in this space because of how quickly the tech was growing. And yeah, one last thing about regarding the investment. I always think there's so many people who are saying, I will mentor you, I will help you, our, our program. And there are people who've already done it. <laughs> those are the people. You are one of those people. The people over at Venture 53 and, and probably some of these other organizations you're part of have already done it. You can say, hey, look at our background. Look at our portfolio of companies and look at our experience. That matters. I know I'm going to lose you. So let's wrap this bad boy up. I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, John Larkin, people who are killing it in this space. Who else should I interview? One of my favorite buddies in this industry is a guy named Tommy Barnes, who All right. was Jed McCandless' sidekick at Project 44, and he's been uh, very instrumental in growing uh, my carrier, which interestingly is one of the six Venture 53 investments in the freight tech top 100. And Tommy is just like a wealth of knowledge and uh, very bright on the freight tech space. And I, I would think he'd be a very interesting interview. I love it. I love it. Hopefully you can introduce me. I, I know I'm already connected to him on LinkedIn, but that would be great. So John Larkin, what conferences will we see you and the Venture 53 people at and the what's and Clarity and Capital? Where will we see you guys at? Once my uh, hip surgeon uh, clears me to travel, which should be coming up in the next week or two, I'm going to be at the ATA, uh, MCE down in Austin. I'm going to be at the uh, Armstrong 3PL Summit in Chicago. One of my Clarendon partners is going to be at the Harris Williams Transportation Conference in Nashville. I've never heard of that one. Harris Williams, what is that? Harris Williams is a M&A advisory firm that has done a really nice job in the transportation logistics uh, space. 
and they started having a conference just before COVID, canceled it for a couple of years during COVID, and then started it back up last year. Unfortunately, that overlaps with the Armstrong Conference, so I can't be in two places at once, haven't figured out how to use technology to do that yet. Excellent, excellent. So what I'll do, John, is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, a link to whatever websites you give me, I'll put a link to those. And thank you so much for taking the time. I re- oh, I've always enjoyed talking to you because again, you've been there, done that, got the hat. Sounds great, Joe. I really appreciate the invitation and uh, always enjoy the conversation. Let's do it again sometime. For sure. And uh, thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.